after a couple weeks away and looking forward to opening up the Word of God with you this morning. Wasn't that worship great? Um, I tell you, when you go to other places, you learn to appreciate what we have here by God's grace in the midst of the worship and the praise. And so it is a joy to be back with you. There is a French term that most of us are familiar with. It is the French term en garde. And it is used in the sport of fencing. It basically refers to getting into the proper position. Now normally the proper position has the opposite hand, not holding the saber, uh, kind of up in the air uh, and uh, ready for the attack. After on guard, there is engage, and that's where the two fighters uh, begin to fence and begin to fight. This is a little tame because everyone's protected, <laughs> and it becomes a sport, and even electronically, uh, that's how points are made when touches are won. Uh, if this were in the old days where you had swords, the winner was the last one standing. But it is an interesting thing. On guard means get ready for a fight. It has the idea that, uh, you are need, uh, that you are about to engage with a foe. That there are enemies around you who want to slay you. And for a believer, that is indeed true. We need to be on guard, on our guard, because there is present danger, dangers to ensnare us, foes to eliminate us. And so the constant message repeated throughout the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, is this idea of be on your guard. And that is the message that comes out of Mark chapter 13. So let me encourage you to open up your Bibles to the gospel according to Mark. Mark chapter 13. It's interesting, as you're turning to that section of scripture, it's interesting that the four men who wrote our gospels were individuals who were close companions to Jesus Christ or very close associates to those who were. Think of Matthew and think of John. Both of them were apostles, right? They were disciples. They lived with Christ for three years. Well, what about Luke? Luke was a close associate of the apostle Paul who saw Christ and was the apostle born out of due time. And Luke stayed with Paul to the very Bitter end, we read in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Luke was right there recording uh, what Paul was saying. And so in Luke's gospel, uh, he did a lot of research, but had a lot of firsthand information even from the apostle Paul. What about Mark? Well, the early church fathers with united voice say that Mark's gospel is merely the memoirs of Peter. And as Luke stayed with Paul to the bitter end, so history tells us that Mark was right with Peter to the bitter end and wrote down what Peter told him about his own interactions 
with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is interesting that with each of the gospel writers, there appears to be an agenda. For Matthew, he is trying to show that Jesus is the Messiah. For Luke, he's wanting to write a complete history of Christ and the church. And so the book of Acts is volume two. His gospel is volume one. With John, he wants to show that Jesus is divine, the Son of God. But Mark appears to have no particular agenda except to simply talk about Jesus. Shortest gospel, simplest gospel in some sense, and the gospel that simply tells us who Jesus Christ is. And so when we study our way through Mark, as we have been doing, we are seeing simply Jesus. And I love that about the gospel of Mark. But now we come to something that is not so simple. It is regarded as the most difficult chapter in all the Gospel of Mark. One theologian said this is an exegetical minefield. Matthew chapter 13. Someone else has said, no scholar has yet surfaced who can untie the knotty problems of the Olivet Discourse of Mark chapter 13. And another would say, you're a fool if you think you can explain Mark chapter 13. So let me explain it. (laughs) No, to be honest with you, this is indeed one of the most difficult portions of Scripture. But I think there is a key. If I could just give it to you at the outset, perhaps it will be helpful. And this is true with many of the prophecies of the Old Testament and the fulfillment of those prophecies sometimes in both Old and New Testament. Prophecy has multiple fulfillments, almost installments until a final fulfillment is realized in the end of the age. Robert Martin says this about, math, or about Mark 13. There are at least two focal points of this particular prophecy and vision. The ultimate is the coming of the Son of Man, mentioned in verse 26. The earlier is the destruction of Jerusalem as a harbinger of that eventual end. This double perspective often offers for us the best way to navigate through the tricky waters of Mark 13. Any photographer will know if you are taking pictures of a mountain range, it's difficult to have different mountain peaks in focus at the same time. And when you're looking at those peaks, through the lens of a camera, they all appeared to be rather similar and rather close. But if you were actually to walk up those peaks and then to the next peak, you might find out that there are miles apart from one peak to another. What look close together, two mountain peaks, are in reality separated by miles when you get up close. The prophecies of the Old Testament sometimes are mentioned, several of them, in the scope of a few verses. But when you get into those prophecies and you live those prophecies, you find out that there may be years between the mountain peaks of each prophecy. 
And so it's difficult to put it all in focus at the same time. We see this is true with the coming of the Messiah and the coming of his kingdom. The disciples thought the kingdom was going to happen right now. The prophecies in the Old Testament seem to put it together like it's going to happen immediately. Messiah comes, kingdom comes. But they forget that these two mountain peaks are separated by years. And so I think that's the best perspective that we can have when we come to this wonderful portion of Scripture. Now, let's begin reading in verse 1. We won't be able to get through the entire chapter this morning, but we began reading with verse 1. Jesus was leaving the temple. And as he was leaving, remember what he did in the temple? He cleansed the temple. He rebuked those who were leading worship in the temple. When he cleansed the temple, he, he was overturning tables and, and he uh, was really making a mess of the place. And now he's leaving the temple. And the scripture tells us that one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what a magnificent building here. I almost think this is small talk. <laughs> I almost think that uh, they didn't know what else to say. It was an awkward moment. Jesus is leaving the temple. It didn't go so well. <laughs> and what do you do when you're in an awkward moment? You sometimes say things that don't make a lot of sense. And so they're leaving the temple and a disciple says, well, at least it's a pretty impressive place. And Jesus says something that stuns them, verse two. Do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be torn down. Every stone torn down. Verse three tells us as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. Usually it's just Peter, James, and John, but now Andrew is mentioned. These are the first four disciples that were called. They're the cream of the crop. They're two sets of brothers that were involved in the most strategic ministries of all the apostles. The others might have been there, but these came to him privately and said, verse four, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? What things? The destruction of the temple. And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Now, you've got the Olivet Discourse also in Luke's Gospel and in Matthew's Gospel. In Matthew's Gospel, look at verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. And these four disciples asked the question, tell us, when are these things going to happen, this destruction of the temple, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, we don't see that in Mark's gospel, but the question is twofold. When will the temple be destroyed? And in their thinking, that's the end of the world. That's the end of the age. And so what is going to be the sign that you are coming back and the world is ending, the end of the age? Those are their two questions. Jesus is going to pull them apart and answer them both, but reveal to them that they're like two mountain peaks separated by years, or they may not see the distance 
between the two fulfillments, the two prophecies that are being fulfilled. And so you've got the one disciple who is really impressed with the magnificence of the temple. Here's a picture that I like of the temple in Jerusalem or the view of Jerusalem. Now, as you're looking at this old artist's rendering of what the temple mount looked like, which was about 35 acres of land, and this magnificent temple in the center where smoke would have been going up from the regular offerings. So it's like a constant chimney. To the right, you see the mountains of Mount Scopus, kind of on the left, and then Mount of Olives on the right. And this is where the disciples with Jesus are gonna have this discussion. And Jesus gives a parting prophecy. And that's why it's called the Olivet Discourse, the longest discourse in all the Gospel of Mark. The longest sermon that Jesus is, uh, at least a connected sermon, that Jesus preaches uh, that is recorded for us. And this temple indeed is magnificent. Now think of it. It is the house of God for all practical purposes, for any holy Jew. It's the focal point of their faith. It is the visible location of the presence of God, although nothing can contain God in totality. It is the symbol of God restoring his people back from exile and rebuilding this temple. And Herod did a magnificent job, although his motives were questionable, built a temple that took 46 years to build and was not totally completed even in Jesus' day. And Jesus said, my people have turned this into a den of thieves and flipped tables over. No wonder the disciples were going, huh? It's a holy place. Look what Jesus did to it. And so they walk out and say, hey, well, it's a magnificent building, isn't it? And Jesus said, everything is going to be torn down, every stone. Notice verse one says, massive stones. When, When we take our trip to Israel, we go into the rabbi's tunnel, which goes underneath the ground along the western wall. You see the Wailing Wall, and we go a little north of that underneath, and we see a massive stone that is well over 100 tons. It's like a railroad car. Did you know that the heaviest stone in all the Egyptian pyramids is 2.5 tons? In the temple, it's over 100. Unbelievable. And the stones above it were massive. And it indeed was magnificent. Listen to how Josephus describes the temple. He says, the outward face of the temple lacked nothing to impress the eyes of man. For it was covered with plates of gold. And when the sun at first rising reflected its fiery splendor on the temple, all who dared look at it had to turn away as if they were looking at the sun itself. The temple appeared to travelers when at a distance like a mountain covered with snow because where there wasn't gold, there was a magnificent white stone. Here's another picture that uh, just gives you another view of the temple itself. Now we're looking from the west side toward the temple and the Mount of Olives is in the background. And then this final picture is actually a picture of a model that might give you some idea of 
the vantage point of someone on the Mount of Olives. You're looking to the west, and you're looking a little bit to the north. You see, when they were leaving the temple, Jesus said, you think this place is magnificent? Every stone is going to be torn down. And then they walked for about, oh, I don't know, 10 minutes, down the Kidron Valley, up the mountain, had a seat, and that's where the discourse begins in verse 3. In stunned silence, the disciples were walking, thinking to themselves, what in the world is going on? And by the way, Jesus gets in trouble later on of, in the week for making this prediction that the temple is going to be destroyed. And when they abuse him, and when he's placed on trial, these words they bring back to accuse and ultimately convict him. So here we are, and Jesus gives us an answer to both of these questions. When is this going to happen to the temple? And what are the signs that lead to your coming and the end of the age? Those are the two questions that are being asked, and these are the two questions that are being answered, and that's the easy part. Look at verse 5. In answering question number one, Jesus says, you need to be aware of deception. Don't be deceived. Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he, and they will deceive many. If you jump down to verse 22, the same idea is there. False prophets, false messiahs will appear. They'll perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. And since there was natural fervor with this expectation of a coming messiah, there were many false prophets who rose up and claimed to be the one that the prophets predicted. And Jesus said, don't be deceived. By the way, this is wise counsel for us today. Not everyone who names the name Jesus follows the scriptures. We've got to be on our guard. We've got to be aware of this. Don't be deceived. How can you keep from being deceived? Know the truth of scripture. And compare whatever is said from any pulpit in any message on any television program, in any book, compare what is being said with the scriptures. Be students of the word. Know the truth so well that you can smell an error anytime you're confronted with it. I don't think you need to study all the errors. There are too many to study. Although many of the errors that are popular today are simply old lies with new faces. The same old lies covered in a new perspective don't be deceived. Did you know that the devil is a deceiver? And that he has ministers of light or people who claim to be ministers of light and righteousness proclaiming his lies? That's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians. So don't be deceived. On guard. The enemy is trying to take you down. And it was true in that day. And from the time Jesus gave this message, which would have been, what, 32 A.D., until Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, the decades that follow, many false deceivers 
came. There's a second thing that he mentions in his sermon, and we'll call this just generally difficulties. For in verse 7 he says, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Now Jesus is separating the destruction of the temple itself with the final end. They brought them all together. They thought they would happen at the same time. Jesus said, no, the end is not yet. The end hasn't come. But what you are going to have are wars and rumors of wars. And don't be alarmed thinking that this is indeed the end. Remember, they were living in the time of the Pax Romana, the great peace that Rome had accomplished. Rome was a tyrant, yes, but it at least brought tranquility and civility to their world. But wars and rumors of wars would soon come and pull the place apart. There would be political conflicts. It's interesting, isn't it, that human civilization has not been free of war for any long period of time. Will Durant, the well-known historian, has a famous quote in which he said, and this is mentioned in the Lessons of History, which was written in 1968, or at least published in 1968. He said, in the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 years have seen no war. Now, maybe in our little town, There isn't a war, but is war going on in the world? Are we engaged in war as a country? Have we been since 1968? Yeah, war seems to be a constant in rumors of wars. These are the kind of things that are going to happen because Jesus said in his sermon, this is the beginning of the end. This isn't the end, it's just the beginning, verse 8. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, famines. These are the beginning of the birth pangs. This is just the start of labor. It's not the end. It's the beginning of the end. By the way, it is interesting to note that five major earthquakes took place from the time that Jesus spoke this sermon until Jerusalem was destroyed. There was a major earthquake earthquake on the island of Crete. Rome itself in 51 had a horrible earthquake and other places. And in the year 65 AD, there was a horrible famine, partly because of the earthquake that had taken place before. So you'll have political conflicts and natural calamities, verse eight, and that's why you've gotta be careful about those who say, wait a minute, there's a lot of war going on in the world, and wait a minute, we just had a bunch of famines. Aha, this must be the end. Jesus said, don't be alarmed. This kind of thing's gonna be going on and on and on. We have a tendency to take this portion of scripture and only look at the future from our vantage point. But you have to understand that as he was talking to these disciples, he was mentioning something that they were going to experience, or at least people with them would experience in just a few decades. So he talks about these difficulties that they're going to be facing. So verse 9, he says, you need to be on guard. 
There it is. And that word is going to be mentioned again in verse 23, which kind of ends this literary unit of thought. This ends this theme of discussion. It's an inclusio. It's bookends. It starts with this be on your guard, don't be deceived. And he ends in verse 23, this section of thought, be on your guard. Now, to go on with difficulties, look at verse 9. Be on your guard. You'll be handed over to local councils. You'll be flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you'll stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And by the way, this is exactly what happened to the apostles, right? Read the book of Acts. As Paul stands before King Agrippa because of the name of Christ. And so they were flogged in places that should have been areas of protection, their own places of worship. And they were brought before kings and governmental authorities. Verse 10. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. That is often a confusing text of scripture, but read it in its context. It's not necessarily that the gospel has to go to every particular nation before Jesus comes again. It's that this is the matter of first priority. And the way that the gospel is taken to all the nations is persecution. That's what it says. Verse 9, they're going to take you before governors and kings. And as you go, you'll be sharing the gospel. And so Paul gives a witness to King Agrippa. One of our own, Will Wagner, who is a lawyer, shared the story of where there was a court case in Sweden, I think it was, where a pastor in a little bitty town was being attacked for preaching the gospel. He said something the government didn't like, and they were going to throw him in prison. Well, it turned into a lawsuit. It went before their Supreme Court. Will was called in, and the juror said, well, before we can accuse this guy, we've got to listen to a sermon, and they played it on public television. <laughs> and in the end, he was vindicated. He was persecuted, but vindicated, and what happened to the gospel? It was taken by their own public television to every home in the nation. That's verse 10. <clears throat> What you and I understand is that persecution results in proclamation. What you and I need to understand is that the difficult times that we face, whether it's persecution by officials or difficulties in our own life, these are opportunities to take the gospel in a powerful way to those who've never heard, to those that we otherwise would never have an audience with. And so persecution, indeed, the blood of the martyr is the seed of the church. And the more you put the church down, the more it grows. And that's what it's talking about here. Look at verse 11. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, don't worry before about what you're going to say. Just whatever you need to say will be given to you. What you need to say will be given to you. At that time, it's not you speaking, it's the Holy Spirit. This is a favorite verse for pastors. <laughs> Don't worry about what you're going to preach on on Sunday. Don't study. Just get up there and the Spirit will give you something to say. <laughs> I dare say that's taken out of context. But you go from official persecution to very personal persecution. 
Look at verse 12. Brother will betray brother to death, father his child, children will bear, rebel against their parents. By the way, this was happening to the disciples in the years following this sermon of Jesus all the way up to the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Everyone, verse 13, will hate you because of me. What does that mean? The Jews say there is only one God. The Romans say Caesar is God. The Christians were saying Jesus is God. And the Romans and the Jews hated it. And persecution became fierce. And that's what Peter writes about in his epistles. The fiery trial which is to test you as though some strange thing is happening to you might even be connected to the fire of Rome that was blamed on Christians. And the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's not saying that if you somehow be faithful, you'll earn your salvation. In fact, there's another application to it we'll see at another time. The difficulties are intense. And God wants us to be faithful in the midst of persecution. Now notice the third thing. You've got the destruction. The actual destruction of the city of Jerusalem and of the temple. Verse 14, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. By the way, that probably shouldn't be in red. You know, the words of Christ are often in red. I don't think Jesus said, let the reader understand. That's probably an addition that Mark put in as he was recording the sermon of Christ. Let the reader understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, a specific place. Let those on the housetop go down. Don't go back and enter the house or take anything. Let the one in the field, don't go back and get your cloak. How dreadful it will be for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that it's not winter time, verse 18, because those will be days of great distress, unequal from the beginning when God created the world until now, 32 AD, and never to be equaled again. You say, I think that's speaking about the great tribulation in the future. I do too. But I also think it's speaking about the persecution that they were actually going to endure at that very moment. Because the prophecies, the mountain peaks, now seem to overlap. And much Old Testament prophecy has two uh, perspectives to it. If the Lord did not cut short those days, verse 20, not even the elect could survive. Verse 21, if they say, look, here's the Messiah, don't believe it. Verse 22, false messiahs will come. So, verse 23, be on your guard. In 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. Here's an artist's rendering of what happened, and it was a time of unequaled persecution and destruction. The abomination of desolation that is mentioned in verse 14 seems to be a shift to speak about this actual event. The phrase comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 12, and the first abomination of desolation uh, took place when Antiochus Epiphanes IV actually set a pagan god Zeus on the altar in Jerusalem. And part of that was all part of the Maccabean revolt. Daniel predicted it 
hundreds of years before it happened. But now it's predicted to happen again. And it happened in 70 AD. Titus, the general, came in with his armies. He said at first, don't burn down Jerusalem, but someone set a fire that gutted the temple. And then after that, Titus said, raise the whole city. And every stone was pulled apart from another one because the soldiers were trying to get the gold off the building. And when you take a trip to Israel, you walk among stones and rubble that was brought down in 70 AD. If you go to Rome, on the Arch of Titus, you'll see this relief of Roman soldiers carrying away what? The holy lampstand, the golden candlestick from Jerusalem because they had raised the temple, which is what was predicted. And that's why you could say not even a generation is going to pass before some of this is going to be fulfilled. And so he answers what's going to happen in, chap, in, in the first question, in the first part of this chapter, with the destruction of Jerusalem itself. The Jews defiled the city. The Romans destroyed the city. And Jesus, at this point in, par, in time, departed from the city, leaving it desolate because they turned away from him. So what does this all mean for us? Well, that one verse that we kind of end with today is verse 23. Be on your guard. Because the same deceivers are around us today and the same difficulties we will face today. And although we're not talking about the destruction of Jerusalem itself, there is going to be destruction, especially when we when we see in the future the great tribulation that is going to take place. And I don't know uh, whether the system that we enjoy in America and the peace and tranquility that we've had for years is going to last a whole lot longer. I hope it does. I have some hope, but who knows? But the point that Jesus doesn't make in answering these questions is, here's the date, here's exactly when it's going to happen. In fact, he's going to say later on in chapter 13, no one knows exactly when all of this is going to happen. That is the second part of the prophecy, the second answer to the second question. But the point is this, be faithful and true. True faith in no way, shape, or form is going to save you and I from difficult times. So be on your guard. God is looking for faithfulness. So let's be faithful. Heavenly Father, I pray as we begin our study of the Olivet Discourse that you will help us to grab on to what we can by way of clarity and thought And while we may disagree on some of the particulars and even be confused by the timing of some of the events, let us be certain of this, that as believers we are going to face difficult times and it's through persecution that we proclaim the good news of Christ. It's through times of trial that our faith is tested and put on display for the whole world to see. 
So Lord, let us be faithful. And let us be on our guard. And let us know the word so well that we can clearly see error when it comes our way. For the word of truth is nothing more than the heart and mind of God. And Jesus is the living truth and the Bible is the living written truth. Help us to follow with all of our hearts in Jesus' name.